You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Will you please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5 for the passage that will occupy our attention here this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We'll read together the first seven verses and then we'll open in prayer together. Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God, for God is in heaven and you are on the earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the works of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. Our Lord, we are grateful to you for giving us your word, and it is our desire that you would incline our hearts to your word and to the light and to the truth. We thank you for this great mercy of giving us the revelation of yourself in the pages of Scripture, and we pray that in our time here together today that you would strengthen our hearts and encourage us, reprove us where we need that, and we pray that in all things we might give to you obedient hearts We pray that by your grace, your word may be our focus and your Holy Spirit our teacher and your glory our everlasting and eternal concern. Make that so today. We pray it in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Well, for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at uh, elements of our worship. There are five of them here in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7, or sorry, three of them in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Got to get my numbers right. That is the sacrifice and prayer and vows. Those are the three things that Solomon addresses here in describing to us what our worship should be and in giving to us wisdom concerning our worship. And each of those three things are elements that every Jewish man, every Jewish woman, every Jewish boy and girl would have been familiar with because it was part of their whole religious life and their worship experience, uh, all three of these elements. They were familiar with what it meant to go to the temple and to offer a sacrifice and to hear mom and dad pray or to pray themselves or uh, even to make vows publicly that they would then be expected to fulfill later on. And in each one of these elements of our worship, Solomon is warning us about how each of these things can become the sacrifice of fools or the prayer of fools or the vows made by fools. In other words, there is an element of folly that can creep in with all of these elements of our worship. In terms of the sacrifice, if you offer a sacrifice without a heart that is ready and ready to obey and ready to listen, instead you come with what is on your mind to speak, that can end up becoming the sacrifice that a fool would offer. Likewise, with prayer, you can pray in such a way as to sound like a fool by using a multitude of words or by using meaningless words. And so Solomon cautions us about that and says, don't, don't use a lot of words. Instead, let your words be few. And now in verses 4 through 7, Solomon turns his attention to vows and the vows that we make. And as with the other two elements of worship, vows can end up being something that is done like a fool. And as with the other two elements of worship, it boils down to what we say with our mouths in making vows. 
And Solomon warns in verse 4 that God takes no delight in fools. In other words, when you vow to the Lord, you can vow like a fool, just as you can pray like a fool and offer a sacrifice like a fool. So it is that when you make your vows to God, you can sound and act like a fool, and God takes no delight in this. In fact, God is rightly angered by the vows made by foolish people. And so now we want to ask, what then does it look like to make foolish vows, and how do we keep from making foolish vows? There, There's nothing in... Unlike with offering a sacrifice or hearing the Word of God in verse 1, and unlike prayer in verses 2 and 3, there's really no analogous part of our worship service that is very similar to offering vows. In other words, we are kind of removed somewhat from this Old Testament practice, and some of it was cultural. We're removed from that in our context, and we're not really familiar with what that looks like. For instance, there is no part of our worship service where after the service we stand up and we make vows to one another about what we're going to do or not do in the coming week, is there? You, you never hear me ask you to do that. Okay, now we've come to the part of the service where you stand up and turn to your neighbor and say, and make a vow to them, right? And you exchange vows. We have nothing analogous to that in our present context. So it will help us, before we go into the passage, to go through something of a foundation to to see what it is that this was, what, what it is that was going on. What was this practice of making and keeping vows in the Old Testament? What did it look like and how was it done? So I'm going to lay a little bit of a foundation before we dive into Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let's begin with a definition for a vow. And this doesn't come with, from Merriam-Webster's dictionary. Anytime a preacher quotes Merriam-Webster for a, a, a definition on anything, you should not walk, you should run from that place because Merriam-Webster is not, not the final authority. Here is what a vow is. And this is a vow concerning this is the definition of a vow in terms of its Old Testament usage and how the Scriptures describe what was taking place. Here is how we would define it. A vow was a promise to abstain from something not ordinarily prohibited or a promise to offer something to God for help He gives. I'll say it again. A promise to abstain from something not ordinarily prohibited or a promise to offer something to God for help He gives. To make that more simple, it is, either, it is a promise to either do something or to not do something. That is as, in its simplest form. It was Vows were made in a variety of different circumstances under a variety of different conditions. There were different types of vows that people made in the Old Testament, but that is basically it. It is a vow to abstain from something not normally prohibited. In other words, you could do this, and there's no sin in doing it, but you make a vow to abstain from this for a period of time. Or it was a promise to do something in exchange for help that God would offer. So let me give you some examples of both of those kinds of vows. First, the vows to abstain or to refrain from doing something. Sometimes men and women made promises to abstain from something that was not normally prohibited. And probably the most famous and recognizable of this kind of vow was a Nazarite vow. You can read all about it in Numbers chapter 6. There's almost an entire chapter devoted to regulating and describing and defining what the Nazarite vow was. But basically it boiled down to this. Somebody who took a Nazarite vow took a vow for a period of time and was only it was a temporary vow, but it was a vow for a period of time, primarily not to do three things. Number one, not to drink or eat the fruit of the vine. That would be uh, grape juice or wines or, or wine or vinegar or grape skins or raisins or anything that was grown on the vine connected with strong drink or uh, an alcoholic beverage. That was one thing to abstain from that. Not normally prohibited. The Jews could drink wine; they could enjoy an alcoholic beverage. That was not something that was normally prohibited, but. A Nazarite would abstain from something that was not normally prohibited, namely the fruit of the vine. Second thing a Nazarite did was he abstained from cutting his hair. 
So no razor came on their, they let their hair grow, no razor came on their head for a period of time. And then they were abstained from touching anything dead and thus becoming unclean. And Numbers chapter 6 describes even if a near relative comes near, uh, dies like right next to you, you don't touch the corpse, you don't do anything to prepare for burial. The Nazarite was to abstain from that and to keep his word, not to drink wine, a strong drink, or have anything to do with grapes, not to cut his hair, and not to touch anything dead and become thus unclean. After a period of time, the Nazarite would would uh, shave his head, he would offer a sacrifice to God when the time, the time period of his vow was completed. So that's probably the most recognizable type of vow to abstain from something not normally prohibited. There are other examples of this kind of vow, not the Nazarite vow, but a vow where you refrain from doing something in the Old Testament. Let me give you a couple examples of it. Samuel was one, or not Samuel, sorry, Saul, King Saul. Uh, Saul made a vow, and it was a vow that as king of Israel, it, it pertained to his troops as well, because he vowed a certain thing that but made his, his troops underneath of that oath. So 1 Samuel 24, sorry, 14 verse 24 says, Now the men of Israel were hard-pressed on that day, for Saul had put the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food before evening, and until I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. And there was Saul making a vow, an oath, and as the leader of the army, he put his men under that similar oath. And he was vowing to abstain from something until God had given him victory over his enemies. Another example of that type of a vow, of somebody abstaining or refraining from something, is Uriah. And you remember the story after David was uh, unfaithful with Bathsheba, that she was found with child and David knew it was hers, and so he called Uriah back from the battlefield, and the whole intention was to deceive, to, to do this trickery, and to put Uriah back home so he could go down and spend the night with his wife, and of course we do what married couples do, he's been gone a long time, and, and then after that it would look as if the, the baby was Uriah's and not David's, and so the whole thing was a ploy and a deception. So Second Samuel 11, 9-13 says, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house and to eat, to drink, and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. So here he refrained from doing something, and he vowed to not do something. That was a righteous vow, and he was a righteous man. He didn't have to do that, but he did do that. And how was Uriah paid for keeping his righteous vow? David ended up having to have him killed in order to cover up the sin, and even that didn't cover it up because God knew, and God revealed what had happened. So those are examples of people refraining from certain things. Let me give you an example of vows in Scripture to do or perform certain things. One of the earliest vows ever made in Scripture, in fact, the very first vow recorded in Scripture was made by Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. Jacob made a vow saying, this is verses 20 and 22, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Now what Jacob was pledging or vowing was that if God should give him provision and protection, bring him safely home, that he would give a tenth of all that he had to God. So it was a, a, a vow to, to pay to the Lord a tithe in exchange for the blessing of provision and protection on the journey. That's one example. Now there are examples of good vows in the Old Testament and bad vows in the Old Testament. An example of a good vow is Hannah. Remember Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 1, she was with this, without child, she didn't have a, a child, and so she went to Shiloh where Eli was and where the tabernacle of God was, and she stood at the doorway of the tent of, tent of meeting and she prayed, and she made a vow to the Lord, and this is what she said. 
O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. And that was a vow to give to the Lord whatever child that the Lord gave to her, if, if the Lord would give her a son. And because of that vow, the nation of Israel was blessed with the prophet Samuel. And so God gave Hannah that son, Samuel, and she brought him to the, as a very young age, I don't think scripture says how old he was, but it was a very young age as a, as a boy, a, a young child, and dedicated him to the Lord, and he served in the tabernacle under Eli uh, all the days until, the, until Eli died. And so as a result of that vow, the nation got Samuel, Hannah got a son, and then the Lord blessed her with three sons and two daughters after that. Then there is an example of a tragic vow, a horrible vow, a rash vow in scripture. Do you remember Jephthah in the book of Judges? Judges chapter 11, Jephthah was a judge over the nation of Israel. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. This is Judges 11, verses 30 and 31. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you indeed will give the sons of Ammon into my hand, meaning if you will grant me military victory over the sons of Ammon, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Why was that a tragic vow? What was the first thing to come out of Jephthah's house? Everybody who has taken Miss Diane's Sunday school class knows this because Miss Diane goes through the book of Judges like three times a year. So you know this story well. What came out of Jephthah's house? His only daughter. And Scripture says Jephthah kept his word. He kept his vow. Now, people are divided as to whether or not Jephthah, whether or not Jephthah keeping that vow simply means that he kept her a virgin, he kept her alive, but he didn't allow her to marry, so he kept her in his own home. Or if that means that Jephthah actually offered up his child as a sacrifice on the altar as a burnt offering. People are divided as to which one of those actually happened. Scripture, I don't think, indicates that he just kept her a virgin and changed the conditions of his vow because it says he kept his word. What did he pledge to do? Offer it up as a burnt offering and a sacrifice. I think that that's what Jephthah did. I think he actually did this. Now that would be in keeping with the whole teaching of the book of Judges that in that time, with no king in Israel, every man did what was right in his own eyes. Jephthah thought that that was right, keeping his vow like that. But it turns out that it was not the right thing to do. And he should not have done it. Now, Jim, are you saying after reading Ecclesiastes 5 that Jephthah should have broke his word and not kept his vow? It's exactly what I'm saying he should have done. He shouldn't have made the vow to begin with because it was a foolish and a rash vow. But having made that vow, the only way that Jephthah could keep that vow was to violate God's word, which three times in the Old Testament God condemned the offering of children to in fire to Moloch as a burnt offering. Jephthah, what Jephthah did was an abomination to God. For him to keep his word in the vow, he would have had to commit a grosser and more indignant sin, an abomination before God to keep that. But I believe that that's what Jephthah did because every man did what was right in his own eyes. And so he fulfilled his vow, even though he should not have fulfilled his vow. I don't believe that God would have kept him, to made him fulfill that vow. Imagine that you vowed, Lord, if you give me this promotion at work next week, I will rob a bank and give half of it to the building fund. Imagine that you made that vow and you said that out loud to the Lord. And then you show up Monday morning and you get the promotion. Do you think that God really wants you to rob the bank and give half of it to the building fund? The rest of us might wish that you would do that and we would get half of the building fund, but that is not what God would have you to do. You've made a rash vow and a foolish vow. You're under no obligation to keep that word because doing so is to commit an even greater sin. So that's an example of a foolish vow. Now what about the New Testament? Interestingly enough, the New Testament, especially compared to the Old Testament, the New Testament teaching on this practice of making and keeping vows is very sparse. There's very little of, about anything in the New Testament, about that in the New Testament. 
Of the 80 references to the word vow in the Bible, four of them come in the New Testament and all the rest of them are in the Old Testament. There's a significance to that, which I'll return here to in just a moment, but let me give you the references to it in the New Testament. Jesus taught on the subject of vows on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33. Jesus said, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. And Jesus was referring to the same Old Testament practice where people were making vows. And of course, in Jesus' day, they were making vows, but then they were adding like, you know, super duper power to the vows. I, I, I swear to do this, and I swear by the temple, or I swear by the gold on the altar, I swear by the city of Jerusalem. And Jesus was saying, you don't, when you make a commitment to God, if you make a commitment to God, you don't need to add, I super duper swear, and I, I you know, pinky promise to do this thing before God, just to let your yes be yes and your no be no. They had abused the, the practice of vows, and Jesus was correcting that and saying, it is enough to simply give your word, and having given your word, keep your word. Don't try and get out of it. We'll say, well, I didn't swear by Jerusalem. I only swore by the gold of the temple. I didn't swear by the really high thing. I didn't swear by God's name. People were abusing the practice of keeping, making and keeping vows, and Jesus was correcting that, referring to the same Old Testament practice. A second reference to it is in the book of Acts chapter 18 when the apostle Paul, we are told, was rushing back to Jerusalem because he had cut his hair because he was keeping a vow, probably the Nazarite vow. And in doing that, the apostle Paul was simply, as a believer in Jesus, worshiping God according to the Old Testament custom, according to some ceremonial aspects of his Jewish culture and faith, not doing anything that is recommended for us, not doing anything that he is, is putting upon us or prescribing. It simply describes that the apostle Paul did this. And as it turns out, in doing this, it was something being done intentionally to offer no offense to the Jews and Jerusalem when the Apostle Paul went back for that. And then when the Apostle Paul got back to Jerusalem, Acts chapter 21 says there were four men who were under a vow and had taken a vow. Now those are the only three references in the New Testament to the subject of, of vows anywhere. So very sparse teaching. So having gone through all of that, the New Testament teaching, the Old Testament teaching, we understood what the practice was. Let us now dive into Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And that was something of a long introduction, but we're going to go through this passage, uh, I think, relatively quickly though not as quickly as some of you would wish, so don't get your hopes up. First, in this passage, in these, four, these verses here, verses 4 to 7, there are three things that Solomon warns against. First, a warning about paying vows in verse 4. There is a warning about making vows in verse 5. And then there is a warning about dismissing vows in verse 6. And all three of these warnings are something that we need to take heed to. And, and, and all of this talk about vows in the Old Testament and the New Testament probably raises for you this question. What about today? Should we be making vows and keeping vows today? You probably are wondering about that. We're going to address that when we get through with this chapter at the very end. So, first the warning about paying vows. The warning about paying vows in verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for He takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. An exclamation point. Pay what you vow. This is what he's emphasizing. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it. And he's actually warning against two things. Number one, being tardy or late in your paying of your vows. And second, not paying it at all. There are two ways that you can offend God and do something foolish. Number one is to be late and to put it off. And the second is to not pay it at all. There's something to be said with paying our vows or keeping our word in a timely fashion simply because the more that we put off doing things like that, the more our affections and our passions tend to cool. And as time passes, we become less and less committed to doing what it was that we had originally committed to do. Say, for instance, that you, you we had a missionary speaker who came up here and he talked about a need on the mission field, and you thought to yourself, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it my commitment to the, the first day of every month, I'm going to give X amount to this missionary family and this missionary endeavor, and I'm going to do that. First day of every month. 
And then the first day of the month comes, but you forget about it because you're busy and you're involved in other things and tragedy strikes or whatever, you're ill or you're sick or you got the flu. And, and before long, you look at your watch, you realize, oh, it's the 14th of the month and I haven't given anything to missionary. Okay, I'll do it on the first because I, mean, I did pledge to God that I would do it on the first of every month, right? So then the first of the next month rolls around and you suddenly realize that you have all kinds of demands that you need to meet. I mean, a lot of financial demands. The kids are in school, there's sports program, you're very busy and... So maybe it would be better to put it off until after school, and I'll start on the 1st of June, on the 1st of every month, on the beginning of the month of June. Then I will fulfill this commitment that I made to give to the missionary and the mission field. But then June 1st comes around, you realize that summer has its own level of busyness and its own financial burdens and constraints. And, and so you decide that maybe 1st of September, when the kids go back to school, things slow down a little bit. And then you see what happens. The 1st of June or the 1st of September rolls around, and... Maybe the need really wasn't there to begin with. I mean, they could probably do without it. They don't really need my money. God doesn't need my money. So you just kind of dismiss it. The more you put off keeping a commitment, the harder it becomes to keep that commitment as time goes on. And pretty soon you convince yourself that it really wasn't a commitment after all. So Solomon says, do not be late in paying your vows. Because God does not take any delight in fools. In fact, it angers him when we make foolish vows. He takes no delight in fools. A righteous man, Scripture says, is somebody who swears, and even if it costs him something, he does not go back on his word. That is Psalm chapter 15, verse 4, where the psalmist describes the righteous man, and he says, a righteous man swears to his own hurt and does not change. He makes a promise, and then he realizes, oh, this is going to cost me. A righteous man doesn't go back and change his word, or be late in paying it, or decide that he's not going to pay it after all. He doesn't go back and say, well, I promised to do that, but now I realize how much that's going to cost me, so I can't do that after all. A righteous man doesn't do that. Fools do. Fools make all kinds of promises that they never keep. Fools make all kinds of promises that they never follow through with. Fools are delinquent in paying their promises, they're late in paying their promises, or they don't pay at all, or you come and present this to a fool and you say, look, this is what you promised to do. Yeah, but I didn't mean it. Or Yeah, it was the heat of the moment. Or yeah, I have a hundred other excuses for that. That's what a fool does, but not a righteous man. So when Solomon says we ought not to be late in paying our vows and we should not, uh, we should pay our vows because we have vowed it, so pay what you vow, he is simply affirming what scripture teaches elsewhere concerning the importance of paying and keeping our vows. Numbers chapter 30 verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all the proceeds out of his mouth. That's the instruction. Do according to all the proceeds out of your mouth. You say, well, I have a hard time fulfilling my word sometimes then shut your mouth. Don't let it come out of your mouth if you can't fulfill what you have promised us to do. It really is that simple. We ought to be that careful in making promises that we can or cannot fulfill. Zip it. Because why? It is better to not vow than to vow and not pay. And that's Solomon's second point. Not only a warning, against, a warning about paying vows, but a warning about making vows in verse 5. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Vows in the Old Testament were completely voluntary, completely. There is no passage in the Old Testament that commands that somebody had to make a vow under a certain circumstance or in a certain condition. Vows were always entirely, completely voluntary, in no way compulsory ever. And so if it is not required that you do this, then be very careful in promising that you do this. So Deuteronomy chapter 23, listen to what Moses wrote. Verse 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. He's saying the same thing Solomon is saying there. For it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin in you. 
You shall be careful to perform what goes out of your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. You have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God. And notice that Moses says, if you refrain from making the vow or the promise, you have not sinned. You have not sinned. It is far better to not pay than to, uh, to not vow and not pay than it is to vow and not pay what you have vowed. God is no more delighted with something that we give, a sacrifice that we make, an offering or a gift to Him or a deed of service. He's no longer, no more delighted with that thing when we do it having not vowed it than if we do it because we have vowed it. In other words, if you want to do something for the Lord, you want to sacrifice or give, or you want to make a commitment to do or to not do something, don't vow that thing. It is better to not vow it and then to do it than to vow it and not pay it. Does that make sense? So that's Solomon's warning against making hasty vows. If you're going to make a vow, pay it. Pay what you have vowed. Pay what comes out of your mouth. Do it because it is completely voluntary. The Lord didn't require you to do this. He put you under no obligation to make this promise. And so don't make the promise. Listen to these other passages which speak of the importance of keeping vows. Psalm 22, verse 25, and you can see from the worship language of the Psalms how much this was part of the, the Old Testament culture and the, the worship of the Jewish people. Psalm 22, 25, From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. Psalm 66, verse 13, I shall come into your house with burnt offerings. I shall pay my vows, which my lips uttered and my mouth spoke when I was in distress. Psalm 116, verse 14, I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all his people. Psalm 76, 11, make vows to the Lord your God and fulfill them. Let all who are around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared. And notice the element there with keeping your word and fulfilling your vows and fearing God. And notice how our passage ends at the end of verse 7. Rather fear God. There is this connection between making vows and fearing God and fulfilling our vows because we fear God. That's the connection in Psalm 76. And you see it here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. God is not impressed one whit with the fleeting impressions or passions of our heart, which very quickly vanish away. In other words, I'll say that we are in a worship service and we are singing, I Surrender All, the hymn, I Surrender All. And there's something about Cornell's magnificent piano playing and, and Mel's passionate strumming on the guitar that get me whipped up into this heat of frenzy and tears come to my eyes and I think to myself in my mind and I say to, my, to the Lord in my mind, Lord, I do surrender all. In fact, in order to show you just how much I do surrender to you, I'm going to give half of my income next month to the building fund and half of my income the following month to the missionary family X and half of my income the following month to the missionary family Y. And then I get home and I start thinking through the implications of this. And I realize, well, I have other financial commitments that I, I really need to fulfill. And that was a big promise that I prayed to the Lord in the heat of that passionate worship. And I got carried away with it. And I really, I'm not going to be able to do that. But the Lord knows my heart. I mean, He knows how committed I am to Him in this moment. And He knows how passionate I was when I made that promise. And He can really see that I really, really meant it when I, when I said it, even though I can't fulfill it now. He really looks on that and He's pleased with the fact that I even... Right? Like my wife will sometimes say, it is the thought that counts. The fact that you wanted to do this even though you didn't do this really warms my heart. Well, my wife is not God, and God is not nearly as impressed with what I wanted to do as what I actually do. The Lord's not impressed with the fleeting passions of our heart. And He doesn't look down on that type of a commitment that I just described to you and say, oh, wow, <laughs> what Jim said there, as much as he was unable to fill it, it sure warms the cackles of my heart just to know that he even thought of doing that. No, God sees it for what it is, a rash and foolish vow, the empty words of a foolish person saying a foolish thing 
from the passions of his heart. And God is not at all impressed. In fact, Solomon warns, it angers him. This is the third warning. The warning against dismissing vows in verse 6. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. What does that describe? Who is the messenger? What is the messenger of God? The messenger of God was probably either a priest or somebody sent on behalf of a priest to collect on a vow. So this is the idea, that you would be in a worship service there at the temple and you would make a vow, a public vow. Public vows made publicly were intended to be fulfilled publicly. And so the priest would record who made the vow, what was vowed, and when the vow was to be paid. And then when the day came, a messenger from of God, from the priest or from the temple, on behalf of the priest of the temple, would come to your house to collect the vow. You offered, you promised to give a, an ox, or you promised to give a dove, or you promised to give a lamb, or a tenth, or a tithe, or first fruits, or wheat, or whatever it was, and they would collect it. And so do not say, do not let your, your speech cause you to sin, that you might say in the presence of the messenger of God, when he comes to collect your debt, oh, it was a mistake. I didn't really mean it. Now it was kind of, you know, I said it. Everybody else around me was vowing and promising this and that. And we all came forward. I mean, the altar was filled with people and all my buddies came forward. And so I came forward and yeah, I promised this, but it was a mistake. I really shouldn't have promised it. I really didn't mean it. The Lord knows I didn't mean it. I mean, it's not really what I said. It's not what I, mean, what I said, but it's not what I, you know, like I meant. It's just kind of what I, I said, but I wasn't really meaning what I said. You know how that goes. And that's how I, it's just a mistake. Just go back, just kind of cross it off. I'll just initial that you came to collect and it was all good. You know, you keep it under your belt. I'll keep it under my, I won't say anything to anybody about it. It's a mistake. Don't, that's allowing your lips to cause you to sin. To say in the presence of the person who comes to collect the debt, ah, it was just a mistake. And so then God would be angry with you on account of your words and destroy the works of your hands. That's the end of verse 6. What is the works of our hands? Some people think that what Solomon is describing there by the works of your hands is the sacrifice, the physical sacrifice that you would make. In other words, that if you brought the physical sacrifice to the temple, but you hadn't paid the vow that you had vowed before, but then you come to offer the sacrifice knowing that you have this unpaid debt and you have no intention of paying the debt, and you just said it was a mistake and so you dismissed it, and now you just kind of bring in a sacrifice to sort of cover it all up, that God would disregard that sacrifice and that would be destroying or disregarding, denying the works of your hands, the physical sacrifice. But in the context of the book of Ecclesiastes, I think that the works of our hands is something entirely different. As Solomon uses the term works or labor and the works of our hands throughout this book, he never seems to use it in, in, to describe a sacrifice, any kind of a physical sacrifice of worship. By the works of our hands, I think Solomon is describing the work that we do, our labor, our work, our toil that produces fruit from our labor, that ends up producing the very thing that over and over in Ecclesiastes he commends us to enjoy. For instance, Solomon returns to this idea throughout the book that God has given you this task, this burden, this laborious task here on earth. And so in laboring and working day after day, you end up producing the fruit of that labor. And then Solomon says, that is the gift of God. Enjoy the fruit of that labor. Enjoy the work of your hands. Take delight in what God has called you to do. Enjoy the fruit of it, because this is the good gift of God to you. The, the, the fruit of our work that we are to enjoy is the singularly bright spot in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is otherwise entirely bleak and depressing. But what if God should destroy that one blessing that he has given to you in this otherwise vexing and vain and empty life? That's Solomon's perspective. This one thing that God has given to you that seems to add purpose and meaning and give significance to what you do, this one blessing that you would enjoy the vexing and taxing, the fruit of that vexing and taxing labor, what if God should destroy that and leave you with nothing? Then that would truly be empty. And see, for Solomon, this is the ultimate disaster to have that one thing taken away because you have sinned against God by using your mouth in a way that profanes Him and a way that, uh, that, that angers Him so that He is destroying the work of your hands. 
And so this would be empty, and that's not something that we should want. There's enough emptiness and vanity in life. Why fill our worship with emptiness and vanity by the words of our mouth, right? Life is, life is vain enough. That's Solomon's perspective. Why make it vainer by pledging things that you cannot fulfill? What are some examples of this today? Let me give you a couple of examples of this. There are, of course, foxhole vows, vows that we make when we are under distress. Lord, if you will heal my wife, heal my husband, heal our child, we promise you that we will never miss another day at church. We will serve in Sunday school till the end of time. We will up our giving twice what we're giving now. Lord, if you will, if you will grant me this, uh, if you will grant me this thing and, 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 and get me out of this circumstance, this tight difficulty, I will do XYZ, fill in the blank. Those are kind of vows that are made under distress, foxhole vows that end up being as meaningful as foxhole conversions oftentimes. Then there are vows that are made that are not necessarily the result of distress that we are in, but just the daily desires that we face. Lord, if you give me this woman as a girlfriend or a wife, I promise to you that we will begin every one of our dates with 30 minutes of prayer before we even go watch a movie or go out to dinner. Lord, if you will give me this promotion or this better parking spot at work or a corner office, I promise to you that I will up my giving to the church by X amount. Now, all of us, I would venture to say, unless you're like four years old, Everybody in this building has committed this act in some way, to some degree, at some point in your Christian life. Thinking that we can bargain with God. Those are examples of that. Uh, those are examples of, of offering vows today. But now the question is, should we be doing this today? Should this be part of our worship? There are church environments and church cultures where vows are exchanged. For instance, um, there are some church uh, religious environments or denominations that encourage baptismal vows, that before you get baptized, you say certain vows or you recite certain vows to the other people of God who are witnesses there. There are church membership vows that some denominations have, where before you become a church member, you make certain vows to everybody else who is part of the church, and they make certain vows to you, and there's a covenant that is exchanged some denominations have ordination vows where before you can become a pastor, an elder, a deacon, or a bishop, or a pope, or whatever it is, that you have to exchange certain vows and give certain vows that are connected with your ordination. Should we be doing that? It is my conviction, and I'm going to argue for this point, it is my conviction that we ought not to be doing that, nor would I ever encourage somebody to do that. I'm going to give you my arguments why. I'm going to lay out my reasons why. And as I do this, you're going to be thinking in your mind, but there's an exception to this. But but what about, but what about, but what about? Okay, just ignore the but what about for just a second. And I want you to focus in on what I'm, I'm going to say. And then I'm going to come back to the but what about at the end of this. And I will show you that the but what about actually proves my, my whole point. Are we all clear on what the but what about is and what to do with it? <laughs> all right, so here are my reasons why I do not think that making and keeping vows should be part of our worship today. This is my argument. Number one, the New Testament is silent regarding teaching for Christians doing this today. There's nothing there. We have a description of Jesus talking about the Old Testament promise and giving some of the same corrections that Solomon does here. We don't, we don't have any prescription from any apostle or any of the disciples about doing this. Nothing. If this were something that were going on in the New Testament era and the churches were doing this and Christians were regularly involved in this, we would expect to find some sort of description, some sort of regulation, some sort of correction, some kind of an abuse, some sort of an example of people doing this, but we don't have any examples of people doing this. And you say, well, some people have suggested, what about Ananias and Sapphira as an example? 
Right? They promised to do something and then they didn't do it and God killed them for not doing it in Acts chapter 5. And there's no record that Ananias and Sapphira actually took a vow. It just says that this is what other people were doing and Ananias and Sapphira did this. There were needs in Jerusalem. They sold their land. They brought the proceeds to the apostles' feet, laid it at the apostles' feet to meet the needs in Jerusalem, but they didn't lay all of it there. They made it look as if they laid it all there, but they kept back some of it for themselves and they lied about what it is that they brought. It doesn't say that they made a vow and broke a vow. It just says that they lied about what they were actually doing. So I don't even think that that even fulfills the New Testament description, uh, an example of a New Testament uh, example of people making and keeping vows. So the New Testament is silent about it. In terms of, uh, other than just describing that Paul did this, there were four Jewish men in Jerusalem who we probably understand were unbelievers in Christ. This, these two men did this, but there's no prescription for us to do it. Second, the whole process of making and keeping vows is something that's much more fitting with the quid pro quo character of the old covenant than it is with the glories of the new covenant. In other words, this is something that we would expect under the culture of the old covenant and the terms of the old covenant more than we would expect it under the terms of the new covenant. In the new covenant, we have been given everything. We've been given the kingdom, unfettered access to the throne of grace. We are adopted into the family of God. We are His children. That is what we have been given. Now, that doesn't mean that all the riches of this world are ours in this life, but it does mean that all the riches of the next world are ours because of what God has done in Christ. And so the proper response for us is, is and this is point three, my argument number three, the proper response for us is not to make vows and to keep vows in exchange for God's blessings, but instead the proper response for us is obedience. And when the New Testament describes our response to what God has done for us in Christ, it describes it in terms of we are to obey Him, we are to submit to Him, we are to obey Him, we are to love Him and honor Him and worship Him as our God. It doesn't describe our response in terms of I will make this vow and I will keep this if the Lord does this to me. Because under the New Testament, He has already done all of this for me. My response is a humble submission, love, and obedience to what He has done. And to respond in that way. So that is what the New Testament describes as our response to the glories of the new covenant. And number four, such vows in Scripture are never commanded. And this kind of overlaps with number one. They're never commanded. They were always voluntary, never compulsory. And so just as in the Old Testament, they were not commanded. It was part of a cultural practice. They did it. But I do not think that that being brought into the new covenant is appropriate. Now you say there is an exception to this. And I will grant there is an exception to this. And here's where the what about comes in. What about marriage? Oh, see, that's an example of us making vows, isn't it? It is. And we talk about marriage vows specifically because they are vows. So why would that be an exception? That would be an exception because in the, in the covenant, in the uh, coming together of a man and a woman in the covenant of marriage, you have two individuals who are covenanting together. They're not making a covenant with God. They're making a covenant with one another before God, pleading for God's help, recognizing that God is doing this and we are in the process of honoring God in this and promising that we will honor God in this, but they are making a covenant with one another, a covenant that did not exist beforehand. Which covenant then is, is cut as a result of and because of and part of the vows that we make. When I stood with my wife, and those of you who are married, when you stood with your spouse before others, you made a promise, you made a covenant, you made vows to one another in the presence of God and in the presence of other witnesses. Now, the making of those vows, and here's what would be my argument, the reason that we reserve vows for marriage and in that, in that environment is because that marks marriage off as a singularly significant and unique relationship, which itself is a picture of Christ and His church. In other words, those vows that are exchanged and that covenant that is cut is a symbol and a picture 
of the relationship that exists between Jesus Christ and us, his bride, his church. He has made a vow. He has made a promise. We, in submitting to that, in calling him Lord, in bowing the knee in repentance and faith, have promised something else. Obedience to him. Submission to him. That is what we have covenanted together with him. In other words, we are in already in that covenant. When we make marriage, we are symbolizing that this covenant exists. And so I make and keep vows in a marriage context, which all just points to the fact that those vows have already been made in a divine context between the Lord and me. And so that exception to the rule actually ends up proving the rule that the, the covenant exists and it no longer requires me to make promises to God in exchange for what blessings he has given because he has already poured out those blessings upon me. And my proper response is one of submission and obedience. And so the vows of a marriage relationship mark that off as a unique and special relationship. Does that make sense? Now, maybe you're not convinced. If you're not, let everybody be convinced in their own minds. I don't think it's appropriate. I won't do it. I won't ask anybody else to do it. And so here's what I say. If you're one of those people who thinks it's important to do this constantly um, and, to, and to make vows and keep vows as part of your regular practice, I would just point you back to the warnings of Scripture. Make sure you pay attention to what's here in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, lest you make God angry with the words of your mouth. And keep in mind, it's better to not make a vow than to make a vow and to not keep it. So if you're going to do that, be very solemn and serious about it. Instead, instead, you ought to fear God. And that's how Solomon ends the passage, the end of verse 7. Rather fear God. For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. And he here compares again the multitude of dreams. Uh, he spoke of dreams back in verse 3 and described dreams as being uh, in the multitude of dreams there is emptiness and, and so it is in the multitude of words there is the, the voice of a fool. Here he talks about dreams again and just says that basically if you're going to make a vow and not keep it, you don't keep your word, your vow, your promise is no better than a dream. It's just an illusion. It's just words. It's just, it just disappears. It's vapor. It's completely meaningless, just like a dream. And instead of making vows and not keeping them, fear God. Now this is a vow. If I were to make a vow, this is a vow I think I could keep. I think I can keep, I think I can vow to fear God. And that is one thing actually that I should strive to do each and every day. And by fear, he's not talking about the terror that strikes your heart where you tremble and, and you're, you're terrified. You don't want to talk to God or anything like that. He's not talking about uh, like the way in which we might be terrified if we were running from a black bear. That's not the type of fear. It is that holy reverence. That awe that we are standing in the presence and, and loving a God who is majestic and holy and transcendent. In verse 2, we are on the earth and He is in heaven. We ought to remember that. In verse 6, we can anger God on account of our words. We ought to remember that. And so the proper response is this adoring fear, this holy reverential awe that we serve such a God. And though He has brought us near and adopted us as children, that doesn't negate the fact that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God and that our God is a consuming fire. So being brought near, we never let that erase for us the responsibility to fear God. If we fear God, we will not sin by offering to Him the sacrifice of fools. If we fear God, we will not sin by praying like a fool and using meaningless and multitude of words. If we fear God, we will not make vows that we cannot or do not intend to keep. So the antidote to foolishness in our worship in all of these areas is simple. Fear God. If we fear Him, we won't make flippant sacrifices, we won't say meaningless prayers, and we won't make meaningless vows. So rather, Solomon says, let us fear God. Let's bow our heads. Father, You have shown to us such great mercy in, in not imputing to us this, our sin and our wretchedness and all of the ways in which we have dishonored to You, uh, you with our lips and our hearts. 
We thank You that in Jesus Christ You have vowed to redeem us and to forgive us and to cleanse us from our sins. And then You have vowed to offer a sacrifice able to pay the price for our sin. And then You have vowed to draw us near to Yourself. You have promised to fully and finally redeem and save all Your people, all those who trust in Your Son. So again, we thank You that You are a promise-keeping God. For if it were not for the fact that You keep Your promises, we would despair of any hope that we have of eternal life. For our ultimate sanctification and our ultimate glorification would all hinge upon promises that we would never have any confidence that would be kept. But that is not so with you. You, you keep your word. You keep your promises. We pray that you would make, to us a, make us a people that is slow to make promises that we cannot keep, that is slow to speak things that might dishonor you. We pray that you would help us to set a guard at our mouths that we may not ever blaspheme your name or dishonor you in our worship, in our prayers, in our sacrifices or in our promises. May you do this for the glory of your great name, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.